A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is produced by Authentic Form and Function. We're a design and technology studio working in the real estate space. We help developers and architects innovate their work with unique brands, websites, and digital tools. Last year, we launched Amplify, a digital real estate marketing platform that combines high-touch custom design with out-of-the-box real estate marketing technology. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com Amplify. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else you should speak with, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. To work seven days a week, 12-hour, 16-hour days on projects for that you're not really getting paid very much for is just not what I think good design should be. That was the epitome of what I thought was wrong with architecture. On this episode, I'm speaking with Matthew Rosenberg, the CEO and design director at MRAD. At MRAD, the business model surrounds his unique mission to revolutionize the architecture industry to resolve its inefficiencies by expanding the scope of the architect. Matthew's an international award-winning designer whose acclamations have landed him on Forbes' Small Giants list, while Inc. Magazine has named him one of the top 10 designers every business should have on their radar. In less than five years, he's built a client list with the likes of Amazon, Equinox, SpaceX, Ring, Blue Bottle Coffee, Virgin Hotels, and over 30 other curated partners and clients. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So as I understand it, you grew up in a small city in Canada. So I want to know two things. The name of that town, because I know Canadian towns can be tough for those that didn't grow up in Canada. And what were you like as a, as a young kid growing up? Yeah, so I grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, it is very flat, very cold for many months out of the year, and then the summers get really hot. But it was an amazing place to grow up. I, I couldn't really imagine a, a better place, a safer place, a better place for community than Saskatoon. And I've been recently going back and really trying to absorb what it gave me as a child and you know what i was like growing up was was a very pudgy short kid (laughs) which i've i haven't grown height much but at least i sort of lost a bit of the pudge so i'm i'm not a bowling ball anymore i think i weigh (laughs) the same now as i did when i was five years old okay Uh, and and i was very good at breaking bones and was a fairly adventurous child and so as a kid, were you like jumping off of walls and like riding your bike around and like drifting around corners and stuff? Or were you like already focused on uh, like architecture as a five-year-old? Yeah, no, that's you pretty much nailed on the first one. I was definitely drifting corners and doing pop wheelies on the steepest driveways we could find in the cul-de-sac, which led me to fracturing my femur Oof. Uh, and held me up in the hospital for a couple months when I was five years old. And uh, I managed, my, my parents are doctors, so I, I definitely got enough visits and enough presents and refused to eat the hospital food. And so my father would bring me a hamburger for lunch every single day, which probably helped with my obesity problem <laughs> as a child. 
So tell me a little bit about your parents then. They're, they were both doctors, but, but what type of uh, care did they provide? Yeah, so my, my dad's actually a pediatrician. My mom an anesthesiologist. And my dad's focused in, in rheumatoid arthritis. So it's definitely a, a niche and something that is not common in Canada or the world for that matter. So he's really interesting character and so calm and so amazing with kids. And he really, my mother and him gave us everything we needed to succeed in anything we wanted to do. They were fully supportive of everything but it had to be something. So you can never just, you know, see what would happen. It, you always had to be studying cello or piano or taking wrestling or swimming or, you know, they, they really gave us an absolute amazing opportunity to find out what our passions and our interests were as a, ch- as a children. Mm. And, and so you said children. So what, what were your, how many siblings did you have and kind of what were they, what were they like? Were they close in age to you as well? Yeah, I have one older sister. She's uh, three and a half years older. She's an artist, now quite well known, actually. Her name's Leah Rosenberg. So she's based in San Francisco. I guess we're both in California. She's based in San Francisco, but she travels the world now. And, you know, it started to work for her finally, which I think we were all a little bit nervous about. And it was definitely an interesting scenario to see her and I really delve deep into these artist communities and really art and architecture and design for our future and our, you know, our whole lives Mm. coming from, from our parents. But that was the support they gave us. They allowed us to figure out who we wanted to be. And I think we're both figuring out still who we want to be. Well, and, and from my understanding, you it's not like you were seven years old and you said, I'm going to be an architect. That that actually took some time. And and it sounds like from from what I understand, your your move through high school wasn't all that bad and, and it wasn't wasn't too hard for you to get through the schooling part of it. Um, you were eventually accepted into the architecture program at McGill University. Um, but that's kind of where the story gets pretty interesting and that's not really where the story ends. Um, it's really where it just begins. Is that right? Yeah, I guess the story begins there. It sort of begins new every day for me as well, but the, the time in high school was great. I mean, I was capable of doing pretty well on exams and getting through high school without working too hard. Although, you know, I still worked perhaps more than some of my friends, so Perhaps that's the reason, but ended up in architecture school at McGill University, fresh out of high school. Lasted all of one year. I probably spent too much time in the dorms and the bars of uh, Montreal than in the classrooms. But it was it was different. It was tough. We were forced. The architecture program was forced into taking physics and calculus and chemistry and all of the sciences that I really realized I wasn't very interested in. I was interested in the art and design of architecture. And, you know, nowadays with computers and technology and algorithms and code, you know, you're capable of designing anything without knowing physics. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's not amazing and critical in some aspects to have a great physics background, but it wasn't what I was truly interested in. 
And so I think, you know, in part it was, I was in this new big city. It was a McGill is an amazing institution that supports community creativity parties for sure, which I did too much of, I'm <laughs> sure. Of it. Uh, but I was good at it. You know, growing up in Saskatoon, you had to bear those cold winter nights and, uh, and we did it by entertaining ourselves sometimes. So, right. But I ended up back in Saskatoon after that first year. They, they gave me the boot. And then I realized I had to fix that pretty quickly. And that, that wasn't acceptable, not just for my parents, but it wasn't acceptable for me. And mm. so it was a really tough, quick lesson to learn that, all right, everything's not as easy as it has been in the past. And there's a whole world out here that's going to be competing for you know, what you want. And so I better start working for it. And and from your parents' perspective, I have to imagine two doctors, you know, they kind of have their lives together. They have these two, you know, beautiful kids. They're, they're proud of their family and their son gets kicked out of school. What did they, what do they think about that? And like, how did that impact kind of your next steps as you were realizing, you know, oh no, that was a mistake? Yeah, I'm not sure I remember. I, I think I spoke so my parents last time I was in Saskatoon a few months ago about it. And I, I think I probably have a different memory of it, mm. but I actually remember just sort of tearing myself apart and them realizing that I had done enough damage on myself <laughs> to, that maybe they didn't need to, you know, to scold me as much this time, but they were, they were definitely nervous and I, I'm sure confused and probably took ownership of of what happened, even though it was, had nothing to do with them. So, you know, I ended up back at the university of Saskatchewan. I did a bachelor of fine arts and studio art and photography, which really pushed me almost the opposite direction into creating some maybe profound art or just really pushing the boundaries of how art can engage community in the city. And, you know, did a couple interesting installations one of them where I basically gathered the class together to run the halls of University of Saskatchewan with cans of pink paint. And it was mostly to see, you know, people's reactions, but also to get people thinking in a different way. There was a second project I did for my photography thesis where I would ask people if they wanted to come model for me. The difference was, is they were modeling outside in their birthday suit <laughs> and in the middle of winter. And so it was, you know, we had a pregnant woman, we had young, old men, women, everybody who was interested in this sort of social experiment to see why do people clothe themselves? What, what happens when you throw something in the mix into this urban environment that really gets people thinking about their society and why the rules are the way they are. And I take that, I take lessons from that with me every day still and realize like, you know, I was sort of, I was a young kid trying to test the waters and see how far I could push things. But what I was pushing was, was society. I was pushing that the, what we all come together to think of as normal is really just created and changes slowly over the course of time. Mm. So once you inject something that changes that, that culture, that society, that that neighborhood, 
quickly, then people start looking and talking about it. But change is constant in our cities and our communities, as we all know. It just doesn't happen so quickly. So I, I really bring that into the studio today and try to learn from that. And how do we actually, if there's massive problems like homelessness and like sustainability, like this, you know, just enormous amounts of trash, how do we solve these problems quickly and not wait 10, 20 years before it's too late to solve them? So that that's that's a great thinking ahead statement here about the work you're getting into today. So let's let's keep moving ahead with regards to after you left that university, after getting your BFA, you did start to move into more design and architecture work. Is that right? And, and, and kind of tell the listeners um, what that was like. What was that pathway like? Yeah. So uh, after I fast-tracked the, the BFA, ended up taking a year actually and traveling around the world to continue to find myself. But I would recommend it to anybody to take a year take a backpack and get lost, get lost in the world, get lost in different cultures, learn from different people and have no prescribed path and the amount that you can learn by exploring the world in different cultures is more than you will ever learn in a classroom or sitting in the studio. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, again, parents fully supported this, uh, Perhaps it's all I knew how to do was support and, and guide and make sure I didn't fall all the way down. No more uh, broken femurs or anything like that. No, <laughs> no, no. I've definitely, uh, since my since all the broken bones as a child, I, I think it sort of shocked my system to not jump out of planes and do crazy hang gliding sure. actions anymore. <laughs> but after that year, I came back and went to Dalhousie University in Halifax, did a Bachelor of Environmental Design and Architecture. And, you know, learned a lot there pretty quickly and ended up going to Paris through that program to study at the Louvre. And from there, actually got accepted into, well, actually, they have an interesting program there where you work for four, eight months through the program at an architecture firm somewhere. So I ended up working in San Francisco and then learned there some, uh, Tom Wiscombe, I believe, was speaking with the CIA in San Francisco. He prompted me to come down and check out the school. So I went to check out SciArc in Los Angeles. Ended up applying, I think, the next day. I was so excited. I didn't believe that any place like this existed. It was so... There was technology. There was the future. There were robots. There was everything you ever wanted architecture to be. And I applied, ended up moving to Paris, got into SciArc and moved from Paris to to Los Angeles, where I... Then completed my master of architecture at SIARC. And when what when did you graduate at, at SIARC? Two thousand nine. Okay. Wow. What was that transition like from I mean you popped around quite a bit there. So you were over in Paris, you went to San Francisco, and then you landed in in Southern California. Was that a time of excitement and intrigue and kind of like your life was on fire or were you, did you feel like you were constantly juggling and and like balls up in the air and it was just kind of a hectic time period? Looking back now, the perspective is quite different because of what I've been through the last five years. Mm. So back then is there's nothing to juggle really, you know, nothing really matters as much as things matter in the present moment. Also, you know, you start hiring people, you have employees, 
have to pay people, you have to pay consultants. The things things matter more when other people are uh, reliant on you delivering. But people weren't really reliant on me back then. And it was my path. I could take a train one day and a plane the next, and no one would really know. It yeah. wasn't nothing fell apart if I decided to change my mind and do something else. So it was, I think, an exciting time because I got to continue exploring the world. I never imagined I would live in Los Angeles ever. But I actually came here and within a couple of weeks, I fell in love with the city. And even to today, I, I wake up, I go to bed, I can go to the beach, I can go to the mountains, I can go to some of the best restaurants in the world art galleries, it has absolutely everything. And there's no way I could have built the studio I built today if I didn't do it in Los Angeles. Mm. It has been an absolute incubator for for MRAD. Let's transition into your career with that in mind. And you actually kept moving along city to city and you you landed in, in Beijing for a year. So tell the listeners about how you found yourself in China. Yeah, well... When you fall out of architecture school at the bottom of the market, there's not a lot of options left. <laughs> so I was, I'd find piecemeal work around LA, but everybody was, you know, Genster just laid off 40% of their staff and everybody was, was released from employment. So there wasn't any sustainable work. Since I'm Canadian, I had to either find a job who would support a visa, which wasn't happening in that time, or move back to Canada. And I was with now my current wife now. She had actually been laid off from LAUSD. So it was, you know, a tough position. Neither of us had employment. It was either go back to Canada or I was getting offers in China. So Really, we were backed into a wall, and I never even imagined I would visit China, strangely enough. Anyway, we packed our bags and picked up and moved there for a year and worked and built some amazing projects and relationships and an experience that I would never give up. But when the year came up, it I was going to try to start a business there. I sort of did try to start one. But if we started another one, we would have been there for another few years and we decided that that wasn't the place that we wanted to grow our lives together. And so we decided to move back to LA after that year. And you, you decided moving back. And I think if I recall correctly, we chatted a little bit prior to the podcast. And I, and I think you were mentioning just the, the, the... I don't even know if work ethic is the right term for it, but sort of this exhaustive working environment um, that you had at the firm called MAD, mm-hmm. working to exhaustion. I think you were mentioning that air quality was something you see and you read about, but actually being there and experiencing it really took a toll on you kind of in the end. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're out in taking a break, 15-minute break outside, and you can barely breathe. It's like trying to, I'm not a smoker, but I imagine it's like trying to smoke 10 cigarettes at once Mm. and just continuing to inhale and not finding any oxygen. It was, the air was terrible and it's really unfortunate the environment that they're, they're living in. I know they are trying to make some moves to fix it, but it was so bad and you could just feel your lungs deteriorating, um, which is definitely part of it. I mean, you have to be comfortable and healthy in the environment and it's, 
it's a critical factor to people's happiness. And, you know, the second part is, yeah, I definitely had a great working ethic anyway, but I believe that architecture is better than that. And I don't think that operating and listen, all architectures studios do this or used to do it. Hopefully it's becoming less and less. I'm not sure that's the truth, but it's, you know, to work seven days a week, 12 hour, 16 hour days on projects for that you're not really getting paid very much for is just not what I think good design should be. And it was a great experience. I learned a lot, but that was the epitome of what I thought was wrong with architecture. And I lived it for a year and I didn't want to come back and continue to do that. But there's not that many offices that you could go to. And so part of the reason I started my own firm was one, I don't work well for people. So there's not many options there. But also, you know, you you talk to people who've been in the industry for 30, 40 years. And then you talk to my colleagues who just come out of studio or are still in their master's or their bachelor's program. And they all are the same kind of frustrated, right? They're all having multiple all-nighters and doing it for what? And they're not really sure. And then they come out of school and they have to work free because, you know, these teachers won't pay them and convince them that they should be working for free to gain experience. Mm. That's not, that's not a sustainable industry. And you start looking at other industries like medicine and tech and law, and there's not the same frustration. Yes, lawyers and, and doctors work a lot, but they're compensated. Or if you're in tech, you you know you risk everything, but potentially there's a big payout at the end of the day. Right. There's no payout at the end of architecture. You just work for 50 years of your life <laughs> and barely make it. And that doesn't make any sense to me why our service industry that designs our cities and our spaces and changes the health and well-being of our minds should be actually feeling this way about what we're doing. And so I really set out to try to change the business model of architecture. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our firm, Authentic Form and Function. I wanted to let you know about an internal research project we recently completed where we analyzed the digital strategy of over 75 commercial real estate projects across multiple asset and project classes. We distilled this research into an ebook called The Real Estate Website Blueprint, which you can download for free on our website at authenticff.com blueprint. In it, we provide several strategies and tactics you can use on your next project to better position in the market, increase project awareness, and accelerate leasing. To download the ebook, be sure to visit authenticff.com slash blueprint. This time between leaving China and actually officially starting your firm, there's an interesting story in there because there was there's this period of waiting where some kind of guerrilla outreach was happening. What was that all about? Yeah. Uh, so between the yoga classes and the, <laughs> and the running, <laughs> I I had to wait for, for my working permit. So wasn't allowed to work for anybody and really just started trying to research how I was going to 
build a business and try to build a body of work. And so I would locate beautiful sites on my runs in, in the hills around Running Canyon, and I would design a house on that site that I thought would be an amazing place for a house. And then what I would do is I'd go try to find the property owner, pitch them on on permitting and building this house. Never happened that way. I mean, it's happened since, but in a very different sort of scenario. But that was it. But it allowed me to sort of have an excuse to design projects with sites, with locations, uh, with a narrative behind them and build a body of work in that in that year that I was waiting. That's that's a really cool story. And that that did basically lead right into, I believe it was 2013 when you uh, all the paperwork was in order and you, and you decided to start your own firm called MRAD. And so really quickly, let's take a, a tangent here and, and tell us about the, the story behind the name. What's, what's MRAD? So MRAD started when I was at Dalhousie, a, a very good friend of mine who I met probably on the first day. His last name was Meyer. My last name was Rosenberg. So, you know, we basically decided when we left school, we were going to start a firm together. And so it was MRAD, who's my Rosenberg Architecture and Design. He ended up going off to work for someone. So I kept the name and uh, just happens that it kind of works with my initials as well. <laughs> and it is catchy, right? Yeah, I guess it works. It works. I think it works. <laughs> You're good there. Um, so, so tell us about the first few years of MRAD. Um, the aim, the business plan, all of those kind of like nitty gritty, getting it off the ground details. Yeah, uh, no business plan, not really <laughs> any direct aim. It was a, a floundering fish trying to figure out the way to back to the sea. It was probably the most fun I've ever had figuring it out, figuring out how to start a business figuring out all the accounting and legal and all of these things that I kind of feel like people or designers especially shouldn't really have to deal with. Like ultimately I'd like to just set up a platform where you can hand anybody who wants to start a firm, I can hand deliver them everything they need and then they can just start doing the work that they should be doing, which is design. Mm. But it was, you know, that process was a lot of life lessons for me and started it out of my 540 square foot apartment in mid city Los Angeles. And from there, just found the first client, which was a pool house in Beverly Hills, 4,500 square foot pool house. And through that process, it allowed me to learn how to permit through the city of Los Angeles. So I learned all the permitting agency stuff, all the fun stuff, all the code, and just figured it out on my own. No one had ever taught me. I didn't work for anyone here that mm. would have known. But it was a great way to learn in this, you know, this guy, thankfully, and I, I try to remind him every time I see him that like he really helped launch MRAD. He doesn't really believe it because he sees what we're building now and thinks it's more, but it without him I would have never even had a chance to start. And mm. so that was one thing. And I would hire some friends to do the drawings so that I could go try to find another client. I was always sort of stepping up and try to find the next, the next client or the next way to grow the company and just figured out how to hire people within that so that there was enough money to pay for them. And I didn't really need much. I mean, we were, you know, we were surviving and that's all we needed to do. Mm. 
One of the things that I'm really excited to to dig into with you here um, and to learn from you is is this innovative business model mind that you have. And we've talked about this a, a bit in the past, but I really want to start to dig into now your approach to projects and how that really differs from other more traditional architecture or creative firms. Feel free to kind of jump in wherever you think is appropriate, but I'd I love to get started there. Sure. Yeah, so the the mission and the business model has really evolved over the last few years, and it's pre, it's pretty solid now. It'll, it'll continue to evolve, maybe less quickly as it did a few years ago. But I realized that it was going to be impossible for me to grow an architecture firm without doing something different, right? And a different design tactic is fine, but that doesn't really give you a lifeline. It's just a different way to design. And then someone else comes in and designs something differently. And then he, they're the next best thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I realized that we needed to take back control of the process, right? We were already getting involved in pre-architecture, which was finding brokers and agents who were about to list the property or listing properties. And we would do a zoning analysis for for them. We would tell them exactly what they could build on the site, what they could yield, what type of project, and even do a quick scheme for them to and a rendering that they could put in their sales pitch. And what that did was begin to get our name out there. Brokers and the agents just blast this stuff out. And if we were able to get ahead of the curve before any other architect even knew about it, then we were already a step ahead because they would then pitch us, they would get a referral, and we would start controlling our pipeline. Because it was very hard for us to compete with the firm that's been around for 20, 30 years. They're always going to get the job over someone that's been around for one or two. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't, other than us doing it for free, which would just proliferate the problem within the business of architecture, we had to find a way to get in with those clients before anyone else knew about the project. And that was how we did it. Did you have any secret sauce with regards to finding or discovering those properties before they were public? You track people who are in the industry. Like I spend a lot of time researching the bigger players who were who were much more active. And as long as you could get in with them, then you would always be ahead because they would always be working on the next deal. Once once something's published on, you know, a real estate or architecture blog or something, those people, that's long gone right? You don't stand a chance anymore. So, But if that person or that company keeps popping up, they're clearly active and always looking for the next thing. So if you can get in with them, develop a relationship, then at some point you're going to get get in their circle and you end up with an opportunity. But persistence is the absolute critical factor to all this. Mm. And you, you kind of alluded to this, but it seems like once you started going and, and kind of getting into that, those brokers would come back to you time and time again. Yeah. Exactly. So then we don't even have to try because then they realize they're getting a free service. They're getting this zoning analysis that tells them exactly what they can build that helps them sell the property anyway. So we're feeding each other, which was critical. And then you end up with this whole network and you know, ultimately you get to start charging for those things, which wasn't really the idea. But we offer so much more service than just someone who does an analysis that if we're able to put together a visual, you can see what you can build on there. That's a massive opportunity for us. One, we show our design, but two, 
the sellers already got this vision in their head in front of their face of what they could do on this site. So we get them thinking about architecture and design during their, during their purchase acquisition, which ultimately led us into this whole pre-architecture, which is, you know, researching cities, talking to neighborhoods and people living in those neighborhoods and trying to find opportunities for development and ultimately tying properties up, raising capital, putting in equity and, and keeping part of the equity on those deals. So by doing that, we're able to carry our lifeline through quite a bit longer if we retain equity in the property or the projects. And it gives us a bit of a safety net down the road. Instead of just going fee to fee, we now have partnered with these developers or these capital groups. And they trust us more to actually deliver an end product because if that end product succeeds greater than they expected, we also succeed. Mm. And that was a critical factor into figuring out a way to partner with them. So the architect isn't always just spending money and designing things that aren't valuable. And so this pre-architecture phase, we'll call it, is really what started first with this alternate business model. And that sounds like that kind of caught fire after a while. The brokers kept coming to you. You were sort of in, in those circles, becoming more and more influential in those circles, if you will. And then kind of talk us through that next phase of um, not post-architecture, but that middle phase of where the creative, where the thinking happens, where the um, inspiration happens. How do you do things differently in that kind of middle chunk? Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the architecture studio side of it, and we're not revolutionizing the architecture part. Yes, we we do all this pre architecture so that we can design architecture and design better buildings, and all we try to do is push the boundary of designing better. So that the way things are done in the past or the way things were built, you know, whether the way it's concrete is poured or if concrete is used at all, we really want to push and test the boundaries of, of material and construction mm-hmm. and design. And we can't do that if we can't afford to stay open. And so the whole, the whole point is to stay open so that we can then focus on better design. And when we're partnered with our projects, we're able to sell them on perhaps more provocative design because we believe and we can build a narrative that it is actually better. It's a better space. It's a better neighborhood. It's a better environment to live in and to move in. And there's better light and air. But all of these things are hard to convince clients when they're underwriting these deals the same every single time. And so it's given us a bit of leverage in terms of being able to design really unique architecture. So it's all about you know, leveraging pieces between the process of the business in order to design better. It all comes back to the architecture studio. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And, and if you can, is there a project that you could point to that would be a good example of maybe walking us through how each of these pre and mid phase uh, workflows have kind of come to fruition? And then even from there, if you can kind of talk about some of the the post-architecture work that goes into the project work that you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, there's a few projects that we assembled. Not Can't really talk about them yet, but we are working on developing our own hotel right now. So that's going to be really pre-architecture and post all the way through to branding, marketing, sales, and operations, which is sort of extending even beyond where we planned on going. But when it comes to hotels, I mean, the the operations and the guest experience without having a hand in the operations, 
we feel like we lose some of the narrative and communication that we're trying to get through. Mm-hmm. So even, you know, when we're working on these multifamily projects, we like to be involved in the branding, marketing at the end and even the sales so that they understand what we've been working on and designing for them for the last three years. Right. Whereas when you hand it over to a broker, you know, they sell it as though it's just another multifamily or apartment or condo. You know, it's similar to this project down the road that just sold for $6 a foot, but they don't actually communicate what went into the design and what could actually be the valuable aspect to that building. And so we like to stay involved there. But, you know, back to the post architecture, what well, touched on it a bit is really about the branding, the marketing, the full interior design, and then creating other revenue verticals. So, you know, pre-architecture creates some equity, partly a revenue vertical. Post-architecture creates opportunities for interior design fees, creates opportunities for us to design and fabricate furniture, which we can design for clients, but also then take off and sell to the market. So anything that goes into the experience of a space, your smell, touch, taste, any of those things we want to be a part of because it creates the brand of that space and it creates a better environment. At the same time, we're able to break those off and create revenue verticals. Mm. And I'm sure that goes full circle to a comment you made earlier in the podcast when you're referring to the Genslers out there. It's not easy for a firm to just go up against a Gensler if you're a smaller shop or a newer shop. And this was the way to sort of reinvent the ecosystem, if you will. And and this is the way that you found around the Genslers. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's like if we think of the circular economy, it's getting it's getting as close to that as possible where we're able to provide value throughout the entire process of design, architecture, real estate, interior design, living and breathing your whole life. We're part of all of it. And so do you feel like we didn't actually talk about this, Matthew, in 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 pre-conversations, but I'm curious now. Do you feel like this new model is a win-win or do you still feel like there are areas to improve this new architectural studio model or business mind? Oh, there's tons of areas to improve for sure. We're, we're figuring this out as we go, but by no means have we figured it out yet. I mean, it's extremely risky because you end up investing fee and or money into projects in order to try to gain some partnership and equity in them. And what that does is, you know, you end up doing things for cost, which we probably would have done anyway. We just wouldn't have ended up with any equity. But it's it's risky in terms of cash flow. So we're we're riding into that now and and learning a lot of lessons in terms of ensuring you have a, a long enough cash flow to keep the company growing and be able to do enough of the work and still grow. So you know, those are immediate lessons, but we're we're for sure about to learn many more as we continue to grow the company. And that's a great segue into learning a little bit more about what you feel like is coming next for you and the team. So as we as we begin to wrap up, let's look ahead a little bit and and tell me a little bit about what you're most excited about, maybe some challenges that are coming down the pipeline. But like where is your head at right now as you look ahead to the next year, three years? And I know that you're a um, in the moment person, and I fully respect that. But uh, let's put on our, uh, our our future looking caps for a second and and tell us what you what you see there. Yeah, we're really looking and speaking now to partners who can fill the rest of that pipeline. So 
you know, we've, we've handled pre architecture and post, but there's even before pre, there's a lot of elements that go into this. And we're looking at developers who have multiple properties that we can come in and fix, fix this problem for them where every time, every project they find and they start, they have to go through the same process. And it, it, there's so many inefficiencies in that where if we can integrate our whole ecosystem in with theirs, it just becomes an extremely efficient operating system. So we're, we're really looking to tap into clients with multiple properties doing either small or massive projects, but at least the quantity is there and integrate what we're building here into what they're building. And hopefully we can solve problems for them and they can solve problems for us. Mm. And how does that all relate back to cities, infrastructure, and sort of designing with the mindset of solving problems. Like that seems like such a big, like when you say it out loud, it seems like such a big task at hand, right? But how do you kind of start to nibble at that as the MRAD team moving forward? Yeah, in a couple of ways. I mean, the more cohesive understanding we have of a city and of the developments that are coming in, so that that's why we look at clients now that have 50, 70 projects going because we can see what the future city or neighborhood is going to look like. And then we can start solving infrastructure problems. So if we know there's 30 projects happening in a certain area, we can start looking at transportation. We can start looking at recycling. We can start looking at all these things that go into the infrastructure of our daily lives within a city and start pinpointing what those problems are and solving them on a small level, on a neighborhood level, mm. and testing those solutions out. One of my favorite questions I get to ask on this podcast is, is, is somewhat of a personal question, but I think it provides a lot of insight and almost like a follow-up opportunity for any listener. I want to know from you who else we should be paying attention to that you feel like is doing groundbreaking or inspiring work that just gets you really excited. Does anyone or any company come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I'll give a couple answers here. I studied Bjarke Engels and his model when I was starting my firm, and I think he's done some interesting things. Again, you know, still had an interesting business model as well. There's a group out of Toronto right now that's doing some really interesting work called Partisans. You know, I'm not entirely sure their business model, but the work they're doing is really beautiful and innovative. So I would look at them and again, pushing back to Canada. So why not? <laughs> Um, one more question for you, Matthew, before I let you go. I'm going to roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the world what you're up to and and where they can find you online. Yeah, so uh, our website is mrad.com. It's m-r-a-d.com. You can find us on Instagram at mrad.inc. And that's about it. Tell me about this design class really quickly before we hop off. Oh yeah, and the design class. <laughs> so we, uh, I've also launched the design class. Basically, design class similar to what you see on the master classes that really breaks down a lot of the details about how I got started, how we run our business, and some background information about how you can do a zoning analysis, a yield study, and get in touch with developers and future clients to help you start your firm. That's, uh, that's great info. And, and we're going to be sure to link to that in our show notes. Uh, Matthew, thanks again for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function. 
the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.